So there's actually some debate in scholarly Buddhist circles as to what is the most important teaching of the Buddha. You can hear different people assert that perhaps dependent origination is the most important teaching and thing we should understand, or that the radical way in which he um, changed the understanding of karma and the uh, source of uh, how things unfold. Um, There's a sense, of course, that the Four Noble Truths is really central, that that is what, if you want to define what Buddhism is, the Four Noble Truths has to be central to that understanding, though just starting to hear that perhaps not as central as we might have thought. Um, Other people might say emptiness is really what's uh, important to be understood, And then there's another whole area of debate, what's unique to the Buddha's teaching, as in what did he discover? What was um, individual unique to his dispensation, to his teaching? And what was just around in the, the the time that he lived in, what teachers and teachings were around, what philosophical understandings were around? Did he just took those on and incorporated them in what we now know as Buddhism? So lot of debate about uh, these things. I actually have found it a little helpful, even though I don't consider myself any kind of expert at all, to try to understand a little bit about the, the time of the Buddha and the teachings that were being offered then, the, the philosophical understandings, the religion. Um, he grew up in uh, northern India in a very rural agrarian society, um, the predominant religion was Brahmanism, um, and it was a caste system where there was a priestly caste, the Brahmins, who were in charge of spirituality. You know, you had to go through them to get anywhere. Where We know that kind of religion. Um, and they were the ones who would offer all of the rites and rituals, the purification that could lead people to greater degrees of happiness or or freedom, whatever they thought was possible. And the practices that were available then were um, a lot around concentration. And the Buddha, as you probably know, did some training, did a lot of training in concentration before his awakening. And um, practices of asceticism. And he also really thoroughly practiced and investigated those and found both of those wanting, not actually leading to the true and deep liberation that he was looking for. Um, So in these discussions, there's, as I said, a lot of debate about what is the most important thing and what's unique about the Buddha's teaching. But there's one uh, teaching or practice that I don't hear talked about in those discussions, even though, as I said, I'm not involved in them, don't consider myself a Buddhist scholar by any means. But the thing that I think is the most important revolutionary and unique to the Buddha's teaching is in some ways the simplest thing, mindfulness. That this training, this practice of calming the mind enough to turn the attention towards what's happening in this present moment and to notice the characteristics or the, the, the properties, the, the nature of that experience, I th- as far as I can see, that was radical and unique. 
And it is what has come down uh, to us today as one of the central practices of Buddhism. And also what I find amazing is it is this practice of mindfulness that really seems as though it's going to be the Dhamma door, the way that Buddhism really makes an impact in the West. I mean, and even five years ago, I wouldn't have thought that it would develop to the extent that it is today, and I think it's just the beginning of this huge uh, expansion of people finding or appreciating the power of mindfulness. And as you probably are very aware, it's being brought into all kinds of different, you could say, secular venues, schools and hospitals and prisons and the workplace and therapy, Uh, mindfulness and it used to be, you know, Zen and everything. Now it's mindfulness and everything. Um, But it's it's really wonderful that, that there's this movement happening and people appreciating the power of just being present. And in some ways it seems so simple or so obvious, but especially to the depth at which, uh, in which the, uh, the Buddha taught it. It's radical to take our attention and instead of, as Gil was pointing to this morning, being so obsessed with objects and, uh, and, and on what's happening, but to actually pay attention to that experience itself and the knowing of that experience, really quite radical. And this, of course, is the core of our meditation practice. Um, And all the different variations and flavors it can come in, its essence is this, paying attention, knowing what's happening in mind and body. So we base our practice on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya number 10, many of you are familiar with, that goes through these four foundations of body, feeling tone, uh, mind, and the Dhamma. Um, And this is the basis of our practice. We use these practices to calm the body, using the breath, the body, the awareness of, of all of those different experiences, so that we can pay attention to the mind. And again, I think this is also key. We don't practice just to calm the body, to experience states of bliss, just samadhi or whatever uh, development along those lines, or to become good breathers or very mindful and slow and meticulous in our actions. We train to know and understand the mind and the workings of the mind and how we relate to our experience. So I'm speaking to the converted, obviously, here. You all know this. This is what we do on retreats. What happens then as we do this training, as we come the mind and body, and start to see more clearly, we have insight into two basic areas of experience. The first one, and the one most people come into, um, is the personal. We start to understand this mind and body. Oh, this is how it works. Oh, this is why I get so caught in this area, or lost, or confused, or fearful or, you know, a whole deep understandings of our family history and our personal um, experiences, personal memories that we've had, and can be a great deal of um, freedom that can come from that kind of understanding, from really knowing ourselves, as that beautiful poem says, no part left out, and, and going through these processes of acceptance and equanimity and forgiveness and compassion really an important part of our practice. But another huge and very important part, in fact more important, that can happen 
often at the same time, but sometimes it happens developmentally, is insight into the impersonal nature of experience. That's not about this particular mind and body and my experience, but really seeing more the nature of reality that is the same for all of us, same for everything, not just for people. And, and so this is uh, a big part of what we'll be talking about on this retreat, is this more impersonal seeing into the nature of experience, of all experience. And the focus of this retreat is seeing that an inherent nature is that it's empty. And we'll be trying to unpack that word because it can, it can seem a little mysterious. I mean, if you, especially if you tell someone who doesn't know anything about Buddhism, oh, everything is empty. They're like, what are you talking about? There's stuff everywhere. You know, what do you mean empty? Or it can sound like we're pointing to some nihilism or, or voidness in a, in a negative way. It just means that things are conditioned, apart from the unconditioned, of course, but on this material realm, that things are conditioned, that have, they arise out of causes and conditions. But to be able to see that, we have to begin to see differently. We have to be willing and interested to see differently. We have to want to see differently. We have to want to step out of our usual habitual ways of seeing, of relating to experiences, I, me, and mine, as Gil was, where's the point? Now it's my striker, you know. Uh, that, that usual way of relating to things, to see differently, to actually find the freedom the Buddha was pointing to. So that's why we practice insight meditation, to have this insight into the way things are. We train so that we can release a little bit the grasp of I, me, and mine, and start to see more clearly and more truthfully. So we have to step outside a little our habitual forms or ways of seeing and perceiving, conceiving, to see differently. And it's why we do these intensive practices of silent retreat. And, you know, as you know, you've all been on retreat. It does help you see differently, right? That's what starts to happen. It's like some scales start to fall away. The constrictions of our usual felt sense of the body loosen up a bit. And we actually start to see a little differently. So I'm really interested in seeing differently in all of the neuroscience research that's going on now. People like Oliver Sacks and his uh, writings about the brain and diseases of the brain and brain injuries and how radically different people can experience this world because their brains function a little differently. I I think it's fascinating because it helps us to recognize that the way we see things, we take to be, well, yeah, all that might be a little weird, but the way I see it, that is the way it is, right? You know, I don't know about you, but the way I see it is the way it really is. The colors and the shapes and the forms and the way of relating, that is the way it is. So I think it's helpful to release that a little bit. And a book that I read a while ago that that, um, was another one of these uh, helpful insights into this was by a woman called Temple Grandin. Many of you may have heard of her. She's what's known as a high-functioning autistic person, self-described as that. Um, She's become a very famous animal behaviorist because she feels her autism allows her to see the world much as animals do. She doesn't think in words like most of us do. She thinks in pictures. And certain things in the world can really startle her as they do animals, certain flashing lights or 
bright colors or whatever, sounds. So she's got a whole career understanding animals. And this book was called Animals in Translation. And it is about animals, but the translation bit is, how does that relate to how we as humans see the world? And she's kind of being this bridge between the animal way of seeing the world and the human way of seeing the world. But I think, again, it helps us understand um, how, what, how we usually see. And so there's this whole piece I want to read from this book where she's talking about some experiments that she didn't create. You know, they're, they're well-known experiments. You may recognize them, but it's a whole piece about how we see or, more importantly, how we don't see. So it's a, from a, a chapter called What People See and Don't See. There's a famous experiment by a psychologist named Daniel Simons, head of the Visual Cognition Lab at the University of Illinois called Gorillas in Our Midst, that shows you how bad people's visual awareness is. In the experiment, they show people a videotape of a basketball game and ask them to count how many passes one team makes. Then a little while into the tape, While everyone is sitting there counting passes, a woman wearing a gorilla suit walks onto the screen, stops, turns, faces the camera, and beats her fists on her chest. 50% of all people who watch the video don't see the gorilla. Even when experimenters ask them directly, did you notice the gorilla? They say, the what? It's not that they don't remember the lady in the gorilla suit. Anyone who's, who's forgotten something they saw will remember it if you give them a prompt. These folks actually didn't see the lady gorilla in the first place. She didn't register. The experimenters tested out their theory with another video in which an actor suddenly changes into a whole different person wearing a completely different set of clothes. 70% of normal people don't notice that either. They also don't notice it in real life. In one study, a blonde-haired man wearing a yellow shirt handed students a form to fill out, then took the completed form behind a bookcase to file. When he came out, he was a dark-haired man wearing a blue shirt. He wasn't the same guy in disguise. He was a whole different person. It didn't matter. 75% of students had no idea they had just interacted with two different people. The scariest study, though, was one that NASA did with commercial airline pilots. The researchers put them in a flight simulator and asked them to do a bunch of routine landings. But on some of the landing approaches, the experimenters added the image of a large commercial airplane parked on the runway, something a pilot would never see in real life, at least let's hope not. One quarter of the pilots landed right on top of the plane. They never saw it. I've seen photographs from the study, and what's interesting is that if you're not a pilot, the park plane is obvious. You can't miss it, and you don't have to be autistic to see it either. I'd bet the ranch that the only people who could possibly miss that plane would have, would have to be commercial pilots. If you're a professional expecting to see what a professional normally would see, there's a 25% chance you'll miss a huge commercial aircraft park crossways blocking the landing strip in the flight simulator. That's because normal people's perceptual systems are built to see what they're used to seeing. If they're used to seeing gorillas in the middle of basketball games, they'll see gorillas. If they're not used to seeing gorillas, they won't. 
They have inattentional blindness. So I think that's, you know, just one of the many pointers that we can read about or even see through our own experience of how biased our perceptions are, how limited our perceptions are. And this thing called inattentional blindness has become, I don't know whether you say popular, but I know there's a whole book on it. There are study, a lot of studies about it because they really, we, it's really recognized that people only see what they're expecting to see a lot of the time. We don't see what's unusual or abnormal or what doesn't fit. You know, we went through an election cycle, right? How many people couldn't see, you know, what didn't fit their worldview? So that just gets rejected, discounted, not even brought into our awareness. Um, She goes on to say things like, people don't consciously see any object unless they're paying direct focused attention and humans are built to see what they're expecting to see. So this is us most of the time. We don't notice a lot about our environment and we don't notice things or choose not to see things that disrupt or disturb our conscious or unconscious held beliefs about how things are or should be or how we want them to be. So quote 52 in your sutta guides on page 15, is the Buddha talking about this unwillingness to see the way things are. Monks, the thought arose in me thus, this truth which I have realized is profound, difficult to see, abstruse, calming, subtle, not attainable through mere sophisticated logic. But beings revel in attachment, take pleasure in attachment and delight in attachment. For beings who thus revel, take pleasure and delight in attachment, this is an extremely difficult thing to see. That is the law of conditionality, the principle of dependent origination. Moreover, this is also an extremely difficult thing to see, the calming of all conditioning, the casting off of all clinging, the abandoning of desire, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. If I were to give this teaching and my words were not understood, that would simply make for weariness and difficulty for me. So it's not just in this day and age that people didn't want to see what didn't fit with their worldview, their comfortable, their idea of comfort or safety. They didn't want to see that. They didn't want to see the Dhamma, the truth of things. They didn't want to see even the way out of suffering by letting go, letting go of clinging and craving an identity view because that didn't seem to match their perception of reality, of the truth of things. And so we have to train in paying attention to unwind that a little bit to actually start to see clearly. And we start with really simple training, with the breath and the body, just like we're doing on this retreat and you've done many times before. But we do that to begin this training to notice what's actually true about experience, to heighten our perceptions to a kind of direct and intimate and and, um, uh, clear-seeing That's not our normal way of seeing it all. This is what we do this kind of practice for. So we can see the Dhamma. 
so we can see the way things actually are. So what do we see when we start to look in this way on the impersonal level? Because the personal is unique and different for each of us, but on an impersonal level, we can start to see the same things. What is it the Buddha said that we can see? And it's interesting, um, he didn't usually say, look, this is what, how things are. See it this way. He said, look and see how you usually conceive and how that gets you into trouble. That was his way of teaching. He said, the way we usually conceive is that things are permanent, that it's possible for us to hold on to things in such a way that they won't change. He said that we have this belief that somewhere out there, there's a source of lasting happiness. And the only reason we haven't found that happiness yet is we haven't tried hard enough. We haven't found the right thing or held on fast enough or, you know, been good enough or perfected enough or achieved whatever it is we thought we should achieve, but it's out there. And that at the center of all of this is this me, you know, looking out from the eyes, holding on to whatever it is I treasure and thinking that's happiness, trying to protect and defend and, and uh, create this world of which, at which I am the center, the abiding center. This is how we usually conceive. And the Buddha said, it's not that way. It's actually interesting, again, as I said, to think of, uh, to um, understand a little bit about the time of the Buddha um, and how these, these ways of conceiving were very much part of the spiritual tradition of his time. That, again, I'm not an expert, my limited understanding, a Brahmanical tradition with the Brahmins who were the priestly um, uh, caste in that system. But the idea was that there was something called an Atta or Atman with a capital A, like self with a capital S. And the point of all practice was somehow to release this Atman, Atta, to unite with Brahma, with the God, with the deity. And, and that was the, the way to liberation or to happiness. And this is what the Buddha said was not true. He said, no, anatta. There is no solid self at the core of this. What there is, is change. Anicca, everything is changing. What there is, is dukkha. Not, uh, if you're trying to find happiness by holding on, that is impossible because the inherent nature of experience is changing and unsatisfactory. And that there isn't anything fixed, abiding, permanent, that we can hold on to, that we can ultimately protect and defend and nurture and create to be, you know, perfected, and that we need to release to have union with Brahma. He said none of this is actually true. If we look and see with these clear eyes of mindfulness and insight, and that actually coming into alignment with these truths is what brings happiness. Not trying, trying to fight against them is what brings unhappiness. And so the point is not just to take these up as belief systems, ideas that we should carry around, you know, card-carrying Buddhists have these in their pockets, but to have insight into them. 
And again, we practice meditation to see clearly moment to moment to have insight so that we understand this for ourselves. It's why we call this insight meditation. It's meant to arouse these kinds of insights, these kind of clear seeings. A little while ago, I heard uh, Ramdas give this teaching where he talked about, um, used this metaphor of going skydiving, uh, and it was around spiritual practice and the challenges of spiritual practice. And he said, you know, deepening in your practice is like going skydiving, which to me sounds like something not appealing to do. The, the sort of vague idea of it, yes, interesting, but the actuality, I have no interest in at all. But imagine that you do or you did want to go skydiving. So off you go up in the plane. You're at that point where the door's opened, you know. And <laughs> I still don't understand why people, when I just like look down, there's nothing. There. Anyway, but you do. You, you want to go, so you decide to jump out. And then he says, you realize you forgot to put the parachute on. Oh, dear. That's a big oops. And so there you are, hurtling through space. Terror, right? Because you know it's a one-way trip. Um, until there's that realization of groundlessness, that there's actually nowhere to land. And this is, again and again, we can have this experience in our spiritual practice of flailing away and fear and confusion. Uh, and all of it is because we think, you know, we're going to squish somewhere um, that, that, that something will annihilate us. And, but when we open to groundlessness, there's ease, there's freedom. So I heard him give that metaphor, and, but it, I don't think he added this to it. But in thinking about it, what came to me is this is the three characteristics. As we fall out of the plane and everything's whizzing by really fast, that's a Nietzsche, everything changing, nothing to hold on to. No parachute, definition of dukkha. <laughs> But no ground, that's anatta, you know, that there's nothing solid there. So this is a process we can go through uh, over and over again in, as we deepen in these insights, just seeing. And they can often bring up fear as we open to the fact that literally everything is changing all the time. It can bring up fear, but as long as we open to the, the tr- other truths, there's a way in which it can be held in this spacious understanding. So again, if we look in the Sutta Guide, quote number 12, about this lack of control. So he's using the schema of the aggregates, which we'll have a talk on a little later in the retreat, but it applies... um, you know, to the basis, basics of our experience. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Banaras at the Deer Park in Isipatana. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five thus, Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, those bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, form is non-self. For if bhikkhus form were self, this form would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to have it of form let my form be thus, let my form be not thus. But because form is non-self, form leads to affliction, and it is not possible to have it of form, let my form be thus, let my form be not thus. So go through the 
all of the other four aggregates, feeling is not, se- not self, perception is not self, volitional formations, consciousness. And then the third paragraph, what do you think, bhikkhus, is form permanent or impermanent? Clever bhikkhus, impermanent, ver- venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to t- change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. So this is the teaching on how the aggregates, the five aggregates, these sort of rivers of experience that make up uh, how we... Experience the world have these characteristics. They're not permanent. They're not a source of lasting happiness. There's nothing solid there at the core of them, and we're not in control. No, if we if we were, wouldn't we arrange it a little differently? Wouldn't we say, as he said, "Let my form be thus, not so short or tall or thin or fat or whatever it is"? But we're not in control, so. We're not even in control of our minds, right? Not, we shouldn't say not even, but you know, you've ever sat down in meditation and said, right, 45 minutes with just the breath or the body or whatever it is. Doesn't work like that, does it? it you know, we're not in control in, in the simplest ways sometimes. And so opening to these truths is really important. Later on in this quote, in this uh, section, uh, the second last paragraph, the, the, the Buddha says, Seeing thus, bhikkhus, the instructed noble disciple experienced revulsion towards form, revulsion towards feeling, revulsion towards perception, all the other aggregates, and then goes on to a, a liberation process, dispassionate, liberated, the knowledge it is liberated, spatially the sequence of um, full liberation. The word revulsion here um, is, uh, my understanding is it's the Pali word nibida, and that Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, now likes to translate that rather than revulsion, which it's a bit like our conversation this morning about destruction. You know, it sounds kind of violent. I don't know what the Pali is for that. But nibida Bhikkhu Bodhi now prefers to use disenchantment. Um, so it's not revulsion as in that's disgusting, but just this not being so caught up in the spell. Disenchantment, I really like that, because it means we're not, you know, when we're under a spell, we're, again, not seeing clearly. That when, we're, when we get disenchanted, we actually see things the way they are. So this is uh, the Buddha pointing to the three characteristics and how central they are. As you see, it leads on to this process of liberation in that sutta. Our practice of insight meditation is almost purpose-designed to reveal that kind of seeing. All of you have had some level of opening to that. Um, And it's different, as you know, to hear this or to believe it or to have a kind of conceptual understanding, even though that's helpful, of these three characteristics. Different to actually know it as an insight. Different to actually have that kind of jumping out of the airplane, no parachute, um, awareness, insight into that everything is changing, that there's nothing solid or substantial about any of this. The first doorway for many of us, 
And we'll often find that we have different doorways in or a stronger relationship to one of these three is usually that, though, of anicca, of impermanence. Because it's, it's, so, it's so obvious to see. I mean, the weather shows the leaves run, rushing in the wind and the clouds racing through the sky and just the, you know, the change of, of the weather um, day to day. All of the different ways. We just know. If you said to anyone on the street, do things change? You know, they'd say, well, mainly they do. But what's not included in that is all the ways we don't want to see change or we don't acknowledge or accept change in ourselves or in others. But as practitioners, we can't help but notice change. As we quieten the mind and really pay attention, you can see each breath is unique, how a thought comes and goes. There's nothing you can actually hold on to. The mood or the mind state of an hour ago, where is that? You know, and I often, as I'm counseling people and they're in really difficult states, or they're, often they're out of the difficult state and they're feeling, you know, some degree of equanimity or understanding, I said, did you remember impermanence? Whatever you were going through was going to change. If we can remember impermanence, it's actually really freeing, whatever we're experiencing. Of course, if it's pleasant, then impermanence is not so much fun. But they, you can't have one without the other, right? You're going gonna to get both. Guy and I were at a teaching a, a, a number of years ago with the Dalai Lama down at Shoreline Amphitheater. You know, thousands of people there in this big outdoor amphitheater. And I love the Dalai Lama. It's just always inspiring to be with him and be with so many people hearing the Dhamma. But occasionally it can get a little dry, right? You know, it's just like, you know, he's going through some text and it's very methodical. But I remember this moment where he started talking about impermanence was like a little, like electricity rippled through the crowd. Because he said, you th- he, he sort of was very challenging. He said, you think you know impermanence, right? You're all Dhamma practitioners. You think you know impermanence. You think you know impermanence because you say, oh, things arise, they persist for a while and they pass away, right? They change. He said, that's not impermanence. He said, impermanence means nothing is ever stable. Nothing is ever the same from moment to moment. And he was really very adamant about the incessant nature of change and how even if we think we understand impermanence, we mean, you know, I feel much the same as I did when I came in here half an hour ago, but I'm not you know, on some fundamental level, not. That everything is changing all the time. There's not even a moment of permanency. And it was just electrifying to hear him say it so clearly and so strongly. But that's the truth of things, that there's not a moment of permanency. And it's kind of scary to think of that because we we like our stuff. We like to know, you know, that it's there for us. But that's the real truth of things. We live our lives around these plans that we make. You know, how many people start saving for their five-year-old's college fund or our retirement plans? And of course we need to do that. You know, the life goes on and we need to make these plans. But we have to do it with this understanding of impermanence and how how things change. And that is the actual truth of things. And so mindfulness again points us to that, to this ephemeral 
nature of experience, that there's nothing solid there. This is, again, a real doorway to emptiness, this lack of solidity, this lack of um, permanence there. And so when we really realize that, we see how futile it is to try and hold on to things. You know, Gil has lost his striker. He was trying so hard to hold on to it, but just a few hours later, I have it. It's mine now. And hopefully he's not suffering too much over there. He's let it go. But uh, this is the way things are. We don't, we can't hold on because it is changing in all these really fundamental ways. And so the power of this is we start to see the preciousness of everything. If we really open to this truth, that we can't control things, they're always in this state of flux. And as I said, it's actually positive because if, you know, obviously if everything was in stasis, we wouldn't be here, you know, things wouldn't change. We need change. Quote 67, the Buddha, the blessed one took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail and said to the bhikkhus, bhikkhu, if there is not even, there is not even this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change. If there was this much form that was permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering could not be discerned. But because there is not even this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, subject to change, this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering is discerned, is discerned, is possible. So impermanence is what makes this whole path possible. So we need impermanence. The next of the truths is dukkha or uh, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, it's usually translated as. In the three characteristics, I, I prefer unsatisfactoriness. It makes more sense in that context, but you can hear people translate it as stress or anguish. It's a word that encompasses, encompasses the whole range of difficult human experience, from the subtlest kind of not-quite-rightness dissatisfaction to the deepest pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. And of course, it's, it's central to Buddhism. It's the bad rap that Buddhism gets. It's, it's all about suffering. I hate it, you know, when you hear... I often hear people interviewed on radio or whatever who don't really know much about Buddhism. They say, oh yeah, Buddhism says everything is suffering. Well, the Buddha never said that. He just said there is suffering. If you have a mind and a body, there'll be suffering. It's the nature of this experience to experience difficulty and uh, dukkha. But it's not to be gloomy or pessimistic about this, as we will keep saying over and over again. It's on the early... um, a section of the study guide, the Buddha said, now as formally I teach suffering in the end of suffering. That suffering is actually a doorway. Suffering is, it's necessary for us to understand suffering so we can find a way out of suffering. And this is part of the paradoxical, often paradoxical nature of the Buddha's teachings. We turn to what's difficult or what's obstructive to actually free ourselves from that, to find a way out of that. So we turn to suffering to understand suffering. And of course, there's a link here between anicca and dukkha. You know, because we're trying to hold on to what's actually impermanent, we suffer. 
because we're trying to control and manipulate and, and create conditions for um, this self to be permanently happy, we suffer. It's, it's inherent uh, in the other two. And often we are the creators of our own suffering through being in contention with the way things are, through not seeing clearly. And that's one of the things we see in the, on the personal level as we start to understand our minds and our hearts. We see the way we often cause our own suffering through our reactivity, through our holding on, through our misunderstanding of the way things are. So we start to look at the nature of suffering, its cause and its ending, and to see that it is possible to end suffering. But it starts with this, the simplest coming into alignment with how things are. So we understand that. Many of you know I, I, I teach and help guide a program called the Dedicated Practitioners Program. A number of you have actually been in that program and um, we do these retreats that are very much like this. They're interactive, there's a lot more teaching and study and there's a real um, whole community that grows up in, in that program. It's a two-year program with five retreats. And we do a whole retreat we call Worldly Dhammas where we talk about sexuality and relationships and money and livelihood and creativity, how to, uh, how to bring all of us into our practice and it's really addressing how do we as lay people practice here in the West in the 21st century. So it's often very rich, sometimes challenging. But at one retreat, we had Norman Fisher, who's a Zen priest and poet, come to the creativity session. And he was wonderful. Um, he had us all write poetry and, and you know, write a line and then throw it, tear it up or put that at the bottom and hand it to the person next to you. I forget what he did, but he just had us, you know, mixing around so much what we were doing that you, you couldn't take any ownership of it or have this sense of judgment around it. And it was very playful. But at the end, he gave a little pep talk. And this is what he said. It was so good that, that I got a copy of it. He said, it's hard being a human being. There's a lot to it. There really is. So let's all agree to accept the reality that we are not going to be able to do a very good job of this. There's too much to do. Isn't it a relief to know that it's not going to work out? So you're not going to get it right. You're not going to get it perfect. The worst possible outcome of my saying these things today would be for everyone to walk out of the room and think, oh God, now I have to take up art. I got to brush my teeth every day. I got to go to the cleaners. My clothes are dirty. I got my family. I got children. I got aging parents. I'm aging. I got to go to doctor's appointments. And now I got to write poetry on top of all that. How am I going to do that? Well, don't worry. Just remember there's no hope. (laughs) You're not going to be able to get it all done, it's not going to work out. But the important thing is, despite this and recognizing and embracing this reality, Don't worry about finishing the job or doing it perfectly because it's not going to happen. But start. You see? Start and continue. That is the thing. You can trust that if you will start and if you will continue with commitment, that will be enough. That will be enough. So life is difficult. Life is dukkha. But that doesn't 
we can use this as a doorway to actually understand more about what's happening. And as I said, have it be a doorway where we start and continue on a path that will bring happiness, not more suffering. Sajjan Chah said there's a kind of suffering that leads to more suffering and the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. We want to explore and understand the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering, which is just actually opening to our experience just as it is. Lastly, there's uh, the third characteristic, anatta. As I said, atta, you know, was uh, this sense of this atman, the self with a, that was solid and enduring. The Buddha said, no, anatta. And, and you can tell in it uh, its relationship grammatically or uh, what's linguistically to shunyata, emptiness. Anatta, empty of self. The Mahayanas actually say, oh, you Theravadins, you understand emptiness of self, you don't understand emptiness of phenomena. It's what, uh, I forget, Guy or Gil was talking about that. But it's not true. I mean, the, in the Pali text, the Buddha's often talking about the emptiness of everything. In that quote that I read er- earlier, it's, it's, it's all empty. But what does this mean, empty of self? Anatta. Again, you know, have to consider the context in which the Buddha was teaching where there was this belief of solidity. But if you look, even though we don't frame it in the same way, we do have that belief, don't we? Me, I, the center of everything, you know, all of this, all of you revolve around me, that, you know, I am the center of the universe and you're just kind of showing up in, in my world. It, we all think that way, don't we? And we have this sort of sense of continuity from day to day and even year to year. And it's a source of a lot of confusion, you know, this teaching, because people hear it and they think they have to figure it out, right? Um, but you can't figure it out. You can't think your way through it. And it's also the source of the limited number of jokes there are in the, the Buddhist world. You know, if there's no self, whose who who arthritis is this? You know, whose knee pain is this? And if, uh, you know, I, I found, because I like to look up jokes and things, there's a whole list, it's called Jewish Buddhism. And, you know, you can there's a whole string of them. And the, what, there's one, um, you know, the, if, the, if, if there's no self, who, whose arthritis is this? And then the next one is, um, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Forget this, and attaining enlightenment will be the least of your problems. <laughs> you just keep breathing. It's also the source of, again, the few jokes, so you probably know this one. What did the Zen master say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. Do you know the next part? So the hot dog vendor does, makes him a loaded hot dog, hands it over, Zen master gives $20, and nothing happens. So he finally says, well, where's my change? And what does the hot dog vendor say? Change must come from within. <laughs> so this question of self, not self, you know, it's, it's, 
it gets many of us on the spiritual journey. It's like, what is this all about? Who am I? What am I doing here? You know, as I said, if, if this was a real test, we'd have instructions by now. We'd, we'd know, wouldn't we? It's, or it seems like every, everyone else knows what they're doing, and we're still trying to figure it out. Who am I? What, you know, that, the quote that Gil read already, you know, who am I? What am I? Where am I going? What should I be doing? What was I? Will I be? Was I not? All of these kind of questions were around in the, the Buddha's time as well. And this sense of ourselves um, perpetuates this delusion that we're in control because we have this sense of agency, yet it's subject to the same factors of impermanence and to lack of control that is an actually illusion. The Buddha's insight was there is nothing permanent, solid, abiding here at the center of all of this. There's just this flow of changing experience, of causes and conditions, in somewhat impersonally continuing on. So there can be a kind of continuity that we can sense, but moment to moment that's not there. If we look really clearly moment to moment, there's nothing solid there. But what's interesting is, as far as I know, the Buddha actually never said categorically, there's no self. I prefer to use the term not-self. And you'll see in quote 33, um, when he was asked directly, he refused to answer. I think it was Vachagotta. The wanderer Vachagotta said, How is it, Master Gotama? Is there a self? The Buddha was silent. Well, he said, Well, is there no self? He was silent. And so... The Venerable Vachagotta rose up and, you know, you can imagine he departed quite dissatisfied with those answers. And so Ananda said, why didn't you answer? And the Buddha said, if I said there was a self, he'd fall into eternalism, atta, holding on to self. If I said there's no self, he'd fall into nihilism, you know, that nothing counts, that somehow it's in between. There's this sense of self, and no one is going to deny that. I mean, Gil talked about this, this sort of relative sense of self and our conditioning and, and history and everything. Yes, of course that's there. But in that, there is just these processes arising and passing, happening in certain conditioned ways, so there's a patterning there. But there's nothing solid or lasting at the center of that. And so our practice is to see that directly, to see this fluidity of self, to see the changing nature itself, to see that it is inherently empty in the sense of just arising out of causes and conditions. Patterns, of course, but not um, anything solid or permanent there that is fit to be taken up, as the Buddha would often say, as me, myself, or I. And so we start to look at this. For me, you know, it's been a, a, a gradual deepening of my understanding. I used to think that, you know, because you'd hear about anatta, no self, n- you know, not self. And I would think it would be like a lightning bolt, you know, where some, some, I'd have this revelation and something that was there would be annihilated and I would have gotten rid of the self. That's often our understanding. But as the Buddha says in this text, um, 
It's not about that, because he said Vajagata would have fallen into even greater confusion, thinking it seems that the self I formerly had no longer exists. And we can feel that, you know, it's like, I want to get rid of this self, you know, ego. Ego is a, ego is a dirty word, as one band would say. Um, it's not that. It's not about getting rid of something, because there's nothing there to be gotten rid of. There's just this flow of experience, which if we relate to it wisely, we can use it. You know, use our sense of self, as Tanisaru Bhikkhu would say, develop a healthy sense of self, one that you can use in your spiritual practice. So we don't want to be, you know, uh, always feeling diminished and uh, insufficient and judging and comparing. We can create a healthy sense of self. And then at some point, as he said, you can let that go because you don't need that, that construct anymore. So for me, it's been this gradual process, not of some annihilation, but just seeing I, I can take up this sense of self and hold on to it and try to protect it and varnish it and, and uh, you know, have it seem a certain way to the external world. And that's a lot of suffering. Or I can just be in the moment responding as directly and as clearly as I can with what's happening internally and externally. And that's a freer way of being. And in some ways it can be, to see this in our meditation practice can be as simple as noticing thoughts. I mean, in some ways it's not that simple. It's a challenging practice to work and bring mindfulness to thinking. But notice, Gil said this this morning, when you're not thinking thoughts about who you are, who are you? What's that like in that space between thoughts? Is there some understanding or reality there that's actually more profound than the thoughts, which let's all admit can be pretty crazy sometimes. You know, if we're going to, stake our sense of ourselves and our thoughts, that's suffering, right? Because a lot of the time they're, they're kind of crazy, wanting and not wanting and fearful and judgmental or whatever. But the space between thoughts, it's not that we should identify with that or that self, but to see that there is this space, this gap that can happen. Yet we're still functioning, aware, awake, alert. So there's something being pointed to there that we can recognize. And that when we're caught in thinking, and again, I've just done this so many times, I notice tension comes into usually the face, maybe a little bit the body. It's literally suffering. And if I find there's a lot of tension, for me it's especially here between the eyes, and I look, I notice that, I've usually been doing a lot of eye, eyeing and myeing, you know, all about me. And so I relax my eyes, relax my forehead, everything softens, and it's more peaceful. It's easier, I'm more present, I'm not lost in past and future. So it's just often as simple as that. We see the construct and we let it go. But the insight part is to see in the letting go, it's actually more pleasant, more peaceful more freeing than when we're lost in this construct of I, of me, of mine. So out of our simple practice of being aware of the breath, noticing the body, 
starting to work with the contents of the mind and that is what we practice for so we can bring wisdom or insight to the workings of the mind all of this can start to reveal itself it is the nature of this practice and it's the nature of reality so it makes sense that that's what we start to see if we look in this way and so the three characteristics are all kind of interrelated, like this triangle that, that support each other, that feed into each other, that open and illuminate each other. And as I said, each of us will find a, a different doorway at different times of ways into this. But this is the truth that we see, that, that things are inherently always changing. If we try to hold on, we'll suffer, and there's nothing permanent or abiding there at the center of things. And when we see that clearly, there's less suffering and there's the possibility of freedom. This is what these teachings point to. This is what the Buddha talked about, suffering and the end of suffering. So let's just sit quietly for a moment and let the words settle. So thank you for your attention. There's now about a half hour for walking. You can go outside and guarantee you blow any cobwebs away, wake you up a 